Well, it was a morning about like this, and pouring the rain and storming, and one fella showed up for church at the little country church. And he was a guy who was a backslider. He attended about once every few months, and the preacher knew he had all kinds of sin problems in his life. And he walked in the door finally, and the pastor was there and him. He sat down three or four rows back, and he said to the preacher, are you going to preach this morning with me being the only one here? And the preacher said, of course. And the preacher said, I wouldn't miss the chance. I'm going to unload on this guy, and uh, he's got all kinds of problems, and I'm going to straighten him out. Well, the preacher preached for over, uh, preached for an over an hour to him, and the fellow had said to him before he began his message, he said, "I didn't think you would preach today if if uh, you only have one cow show up in your barn, would you feed him?" And the preacher said, "Of course I would." So he really fed him that day, an hour's worth. When he got through, he was standing at the door and shake the old boy's hand on the way out. And the fella, he said, how'd you like that? And he said, well, if my one cow showed up, I wouldn't give him everything in the barn. <laughs> and so today we're down, just a few of us, and I've been waiting on this chance because you can't go anywhere and do anything today, can you? So set your watch an hour and a half from now. We're going to walk out the door. Okay, not really. Well, don't make any promises you can't keep, though, Bill. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 in your Bible. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? We're only reading here one verse, but it's a wonderful verse, and I want you to stand out of reverence to God's Word. Revelation 1 and 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins, in his own blood, and we'll read another one, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Read it with me, will you? Everybody together, John, or, or pardon me, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5 and 6. Everybody. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In just one verse of Scripture here, we see all three of the major offices, we refer to them, the major offices of the Lord Jesus Christ. You take all of the work and the ministry that Jesus Christ ever performed upon earth, and you can categorize them into three categories. And every mature Christian 
ought to know these categories. In other words, if you ever wanted to explain Jesus Christ and his ministry to someone, you could say it. Let me give you a little outline. I can give it to you in 10 seconds. Here's what Jesus Christ accomplished in his life. Number one, he was a prophet. Number two, he was a priest. And number three, he was a king. He is our prophet, he is our priest, and he is our king. Now, you see it in this verse. Look at the verse with me. He is our, the faithful witness, the verse says. That's a prophet, because a prophet is a witness. And then, if you'll look down there, he is a priest, he is our priest, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. The purpose of the priest, among, among other things, was to make a sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. And so Jesus is our prophet, the faithful witness. He is our priest, the one who washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he is our king. And the king here comes from the phrase, the prince of the kings of the earth. So in one verse, the entire ministry of Jesus Christ is given to us. And through these three offices, these three functions, if you will, Jesus Christ meets our spiritual needs, and He again emerges as a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Savior. This is the fifth message I've preached to you on the person of Christ. I always preach on Jesus Christ during the Christmas season leading up to it and leading up to Easter because a preacher cannot preach too much on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've got all the sermons ever preached by Charles Spurgeon. They're in about 40-some volumes. Each one is about that thick, over 3,000 messages. And as I look at Spurgeon, arguably the greatest Baptist preacher of all history, I noticed that his constant theme was Jesus Christ. In fact, Spurgeon famously said, I read my text, I announce my theme, and I head straight to Calvary, no matter what I'm preaching on. He always preached to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. His goal was that when people leave the church, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. They're more loyal to Him. They understand Him more than they did when they came in the door. And that's my goal today, that you would love Jesus more, that you would be more loyal and faithful to Him in your Christian walk, and that you would think of Him and understand Him in a way that you have not until now. So let's look, number one, if you're taking notes with me today, number one, let's think of Jesus Christ, our prophet. Throughout the Bible, the Old Testament prophet represented, and this is really important, the prophet represented God. He represented God to the people. In other words, the people of Israel could look to one of their prophets, and the prophet would demonstrate the character and the qualities in his life that the Lord Jesus Christ exhibits to us. And so, the, the prophet was a man who embodied the character of God. He spoke for God when he spoke. 
And whatever he said, the people took it as being directly from God. And so he represented God to the people. He had a message from God for the people. And the people would always give him great, great attention. Now, above everything else, it was the duty of the prophet to speak the truth. In fact, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 18, there's an interesting passage there. It says that if a prophet ever prophesied falsely one time, he was to never be believed again. He was a false prophet. That a true prophet who was listening to God and getting his message from God would always speak the truth. And I, I know today, boy, that's, that's a great principle for you because the world today, and particularly with the advent of the Internet and mass communication, there's a lot of false prophets in the world today. And you need to understand that if a man misses it one time, he has been excluded by God. He is no longer a true prophet. No wonder then the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was standing before Pilate that day, and Pilate was basically saying, who are you and why did you come into the world? And the Lord Jesus Christ said these words. Listen really very carefully because we don't often think of Jesus in this light. We think that Jesus came to die for our sins. He came to be a teacher to us and so on. But listen to what Jesus said was one of the primary reasons that he came. He said, for this cause came I. This is the reason that I came, he said, to bear witness to the truth. In doing that, Jesus was saying, I am the true prophet. And here in Revelation 1 and 5, we just read, Jesus is called the faithful witness. He claimed not only to speak the truth, but you understand John 14 and 6, you probably can quote it. Jesus said, I am the truth. He was the very embodiment of truth. Now today, our world needs that because in a postmodern culture like we're living in today, one of the big issues is truth. What is truth? And today there's, uh, there's not much truth. People don't even believe in the concept of truth. They don't believe that there's such a thing as moral, spiritual truth. We just all have an opinion of what that is. Well, I can tell you what truth is. I'm very confident in what truth is. And truth is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whose birthday we're celebrating, He is truth. He spoke truth, but more importantly, He is the truth today for this world. Now, the role of the prophet then was to teach the people. He represented God to the people. He was to, rep he was to teach the people. And he did something else. He rebuked sin. He told the people of their sins. He called a spade a spade. He was not some feel-good preacher. He, he called the people to repentance from their sins. And he did a third thing. He predicted future events. And so much of our Bible deals with end-time prophecies uttered by these prophets. But these men, representing God to the people, their role to speak the truth, to teach people God's will for their life, and to predict future events. And so they were not always very popular. 
You know Isaiah in your Bible? Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but rabbinical tradition says this. The old rabbis who passed down their writings from one generation to another, and those writings are very, very reliable. The rabbinical tradition says that Isaiah infuriated one of the wicked kings so much that they strapped him down and they sawed him in two. It cost you something to be a prophet in those days. There was Jeremiah, and the Bible even records this, who they put him in a dungeon, and he was sinking down in mire to the point that he was afraid he was not going to ever be able to get out. And uh, finally, he was rescued by other people who knew he was a true man of God, but he almost died and was imprisoned over and over for preaching the truth. Prophets are not always real popular. They're not real popular in our day as well. And then there's Zechariah, who was stoned to death after he preached against the sins of the people. It was pretty dangerous in those days. You needed to have your life insurance policy paid up if you were a prophet in the Old Testament times. Because, you see, men were sinners then like men are sinners today. And sin left men in such spiritual blindness and darkness that when these prophets would come and proclaim the truth of God and moral truth and ethical truth and spiritual truth, they were doing it to guide the people, but the people often resented their message and they hated them. And so when Jesus Christ came, Jesus himself uh, presented himself as a prophet. And uh, the people soon caught on. In Acts chapter 3, they said, he is a prophet likened to Moses. Well, Moses was the most esteemed of all the Old Testament prophets. He was a prophet and a priest. And when Jesus came, they said, this guy reminds us of Moses. He is a prophet likened to Moses. They didn't know at that time that he was the son of God. In Matthew 21, After he spoke once, a whole multitude of people rose up and said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he asked her, where's your husband? And she said, well, I don't have a husband. Jesus said, well, you said correctly. You said right. But you have five husbands, and the man you're with right now is not your husband. And do you know her response? Oh, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You know all about me. And Jesus, of course, was the prophet. And he went to her whole village then and won many, many people to himself. Now, the prophet represented God to the people. Now, stop and think with me a minute. Because undoubtedly, there are people here who You want to know what God is like. Over and over, I hear people make some sort of comment that would mean, I I don't understand all I would like to understand about God. I wonder what God is like. Well, let me tell you what God is like. God is like Jesus. In fact, that's not the best way to say it. Jesus is God. We need to add that, don't we? And you understand, if you want to know what God is like, open up your Bible, read the Gospels, look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When you have seen Jesus Christ, you have seen God. It's just that simple. You want to know what God is like? Study Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the prophet, our great prophet, who reveals God to us. But number two, he is also our great priest. He is our priest. Now, the priest had the opposite responsibility. The prophet represented God to the people. The priest represented the people to God. He was their representative when they came to worship. The priest was a mediator, if you will. He was a go-between, a daysman. And so the people looked to the priest as being the one who stood between them and God. And the New Testament affirms this about Jesus. First Timothy 2 and 5, what does it say? It says, there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. One mediator. By the way, I need to say this. It's not Mary. The mediator is not Mary. The mediator is Jesus Christ. The mediator is not the preacher. And so you don't come to the preacher and confess your sins. We don't have a confessional booth here at the Florence Baptist Temple. I don't need to know your sins. I can't forgive your sins. There's only one who can forgive your sins, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Do your confessing to him. Amen? And he is the priest, though. And so the priest represented the people to God. And you know his duties, the role of the priest was to make sacrifices. So in the Old Testament, they were continually going there, and they were taking the life of those little animals, and they were putting them on the altar, and they were taking their blood and sprinkling it and doing various things, various rituals that were being carried out, all of them with the idea of presenting a sacrifice to God that would be acceptable And this was the primary role of the priest. He had one other role. The role was to pray for the people. And as you look at the Old Testament and you see there the priests, they often put incense into the sacrifices. Now, the sacrifices there were not the sin offerings. You wouldn't put incense into the sin offering. If you were offering a sin offering, you need to confess your sins to God. But they put the incense into what they were called thank offerings, the thanksgiving offerings, which were basically grain and meal that the people would bring to the tabernacle, and they'd give it to the priest. He would mix it with incense, and he would offer it then on the fire of the altar. And the Bible says that that incense, that sweet savor from the incense going up was representative of the prayers of the people. And of course, when the people had problems, often, no doubt, they came to the priest and asked him to intercede, to pray with them about their their needs, whatever they were. So the role of the prophet was to preach and to reveal truth, to call the people from their sins and back to God. The role of the priest was to sacrifice and to pray for the people. Now, how do we follow that through then in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, of course, Jesus was our great high priest. He's the greatest of the priests. And Jesus didn't take a lamb and offer it for a sacrifice. 
Jesus offered his own body. He went way beyond that. All those Old Testament priests were offering the lamb or a substitute. But Jesus Christ became our substitute, and he gave his own body. And that's why today we emphasize and we preach in almost every message. We talk about Christ offering himself for our sins because it's the most momentous event in all of history. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the greatest need you have, whether you believe me or not, whether you like it or not, the greatest need you have is to be forgiven of sin and in right relationship with God. And there's no way you can do that on your own. How do you think you're going to get rid of your sins? You think that you can do some activity, some ritual, and it's going to make you right with God? Absolutely not. I say it lovingly. You're foolish to believe that. There's only one path to God, and Jesus said that in the same verse that I've already quoted, I am the way, I am the truth. The only path to God is through Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ offered himself, and no longer do we bring lambs, no longer do we bring sacrifices. You don't bring anything up here and ask me to offer it to God. That would be ludicrous after thinking that God, the Son of God, came to the earth, became a human being, and presented his own body on the cross as the sacrifice for your sins. Everything else pales into insignificance, doesn't it? My, what a great, great Savior we have. He became the one and the great and final sacrifice for the sins of mankind. It, it is so profound Turn with me the book of Hebrews, if you will, in your Bible, chapter number 7, and I could quote this, but I want you to see it. Well, we have it on the slide, so you can see it right there. For such a high priest became us, who is holy. Listen to the description of our priest, Jesus. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, never sinned separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily to offer up sacrifices. He didn't need to offer up a sacrifice like the priest did for his own sins before he could offer the sacrifice for the sins of the people. This he did once, one time only, when he offered up himself. And so you see here the the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as he offers himself as our great high priest. Not only did he offer the sacrifice, but as the Old Testament priest, he prayed for us, and he's still praying for us. Skip back one verse if you have your Bible open. I don't know if we have that on the slide or not. But in Hebrews 7 and 25, it says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth and maketh intercession for them. He is our great high priest. He ever lives to make intercession. Do you know what? You say to each other sometimes, I hope you'll pray for me. You say to me often, 
Pastor, would you pray for me? Sometimes people write on their connection card, would you pray for me? And I try to do that. But you know what? All of that is pretty faint effort. When you think about that there is one who, if he is your Savior, he's looking down on you today. He knows your need. He knows your heart. He knows your sincerity, if you're a sincere Christian. And you know what? He's praying for you. Isn't that good news today? That's news worth you coming to church to hear, whether you know it or not, that Jesus Christ is praying for you today. He is our great high priest. So he is our prophet. He is our priest. And thirdly, he is our king. Now, he is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king, but he's not our king in the fullest sense that he ever will be the king. You know, if you read not only sacred, but even secular literature, men have always dreamed of a a utopia. It's the dream of every human being at some point in their life, if they're a thinking person at all, it's the dream of every human being that there will come someday in the world a time of peace, that there will be a, a time of justice, that there will be a just government. Well, we long for that in America today, do we not? We're watching a two-tiered justice system. We're watching certain people can get away with virtually anything and other people uh, get prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. We watch that. We, 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 we're losing confidence that there's even such a thing as justice in our system anymore. And men have always dreamed someday there will be a, a, a time and a place in history. There'll be a government where you can get justice. There'll be a time where there will be peace, that the swords will be put up and the bombs will be destroyed and, and the rifles will not be used against other men, that there will be righteous leadership. We've dreamed of that, that the world will be like it was in the Garden of Eden, that there will be a return to what God created, the perfection God created. And at the time that Jesus came to the earth, there was great anticipation going on that, that the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to establish that kind of society. The, the Jews all believed the Messiah would create peace on earth, justice, that he would create a righteous environment, if you will. I'd like you to read with me a couple of those passages. One of those is in the book of Isaiah chapter 11. And just read with me some verses from the Old Testament that show you the, the, the vision, the dream of a utopian future that they had there. Isaiah chapter number 11. Here's a prophecy of the future. It had not occurred when Isaiah wrote this. It wouldn't occur uh, part of it for 700 years, and part of it has not occurred yet. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
and shall make him of quick understanding. It's talking about Jesus. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. He won't listen to any gossip. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek of the earth. He'll smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. A time of peace, the curse will be lifted, the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the kid, the little calf, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear will feed, and their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the sucking child, the nursing little toddler will play on the hole of the asp, that's a cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockathrice den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that beautiful? That is the ultimate dream of a perfect world. And the Jews were waiting for somebody who would bring that in. They believed the Messiah would bring that to them. And there are many prophecies of that. There are more of them I could read to you from Zechariah, from, from Jeremiah. I had one marked here in Jeremiah. Let me read it to you, just two verses. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and execute justice and just judgment in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Don't you think the people in Israel will cling to that passage today? The, the people in Israel will dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called. He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And the days will come, saith the Lord, that they will no more say, the Lord liveth who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That won't be the big miracle. But they'll say, the Lord liveth who brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country. The immigration from Russia that happened in our lifetime. And from all countries, whither I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. They had this dream. We have that dream. That's why men created the, the, the League of Nations. That's why men created the, the, uh, the United Nations. And we find out those, those, those efforts are futile. They've not worked. And they won't work because sinful men are the ones trying to create this. But the Bible says one day that that will actually happen, that there will be a perfect society, that there will be justice, and there will be universal worldwide peace, that there will be righteousness, and it'll flow down like the waters cover the sea there, the last phrase I read said. Now, what they're talking about is what the Bible refers to as the kingdom of God. 
And that's all future. We all know that hasn't occurred yet. That kind of culture has never existed. But the phrase, the kingdom of God, then means where God sovereignly rules, where God is in control of man, there we have the kingdom of God. Sin, which is rebellion against God's governing, left men with a rebellious nature, which men have expressed not only to God but to each other, the violence, the killing, the crime, the war, and so on. And one thing history has taught us is that man needs a king. Man needs government. There's a period in the Bible when there was no government, and it became so wicked that God ended up with judging the world through the flood. We need government. We need civil government. But we need good government. We need righteous government, not corrupt government like we see around us so much. But man cannot, as a whole, govern himself. He needs an authority over him, even on the earth, to hold him in check. He needs someone who can govern him in truth and in justice. And that's the kingdom of God. That's the hope for that. Now, in Luke chapter 4, go with me there quickly, if you will. Jesus is invited to come home up to Nazareth to his hometown, a little village, this little tiny place, wide spot in the road, really. And they, but they had a little synagogue, and they invited Jesus to come that day to the synagogue and to do the reading of the Scripture, which a different man read the Scripture in the synagogue each, each Sabbath day. And in chapter 4 of Luke, in verse 18, or let's go to four, uh, verse 16. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, his habit, he went to church on the Sabbath. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And he stood up to read, and they delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written. It's chapter 61 that he read from, verses 1 and 2 there. And he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Boy, he talks about all these wonderful things God has anointed him to do. To preach the acceptable year of the Lord. But stop. He closed the book. And he gave it to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue were fastened on him. And what did he say? Today, by me doing this, the Scripture has been fulfilled in your sight. This passage has been fulfilled. But you know what? Luke doesn't reveal this. If you'll go back and compare Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus read down, and he just stopped, and he closed the book. There's a phrase there that ends that verse, and the phrase is this, and the day of the vengeance of our God. In other words, Jesus said, I came, and I fulfilled all these wonderful things, deliverance to captives, and liberty to those that are bruised, 
to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. You can come to the Lord now. But then Jesus said, or he, he didn't say, and I came to bring vengeance upon the earth. Because you know why he didn't say that? That's not why he came the first time. He came the first time to reveal the truth. He came the first time to be able to die for our sins. And so it's like there's been a gap now for 2,000 years. Now, he did establish the kingdom of God in the sense spiritually. And the kingdom of God exists today in my heart. It exists in your heart if, here's the qualification for if you're in the kingdom of God, if you have been saved and if you are under the governance of Jesus Christ, in other words, is he ruling in your life? Is he the master and the boss? What he says, are you honestly trying to carry that out in your life? Are you, in other words, an obedient Christian? The kingdom of God exists where Christ is the king, where he rules, where he's, he's, he's the boss, he's the king. A lot of people today call themselves Christians. I don't know if they are or not because you couldn't tell anything by looking at their life. Their lifestyle doesn't reflect that they're under the governance of Jesus Christ. They'll tell you they're saved. A lot of people just want to use Jesus for a fire escape. They just want to avoid hell, but they're not interested in him governing their life and telling them what to do on a day-by-day basis. But where that's true, the kingdom of God exists in our hearts. The kingdom of God is in great numbers of people in this room right now. And what did Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, a righteous life. And if you do all these other things that you worry about, they'll fall into place for you. So the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom that Jesus established at his first coming. But the kingdom of God has never been fully implemented. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, it says the government will be upon his shoulder. The government's never been upon Jesus' shoulder. He's never governed in the sense of a political governing, but he's going to because he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem, from the throne of David, which is going to be picked up and continued again forever and ever one of these days. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, it describes that reign, and it talks about the saints, you and me. We will reign with him for a thousand years. He is our king. Now, literally, he will be our king physically, politically. Today, he is our king spiritually, and his kingdom is in the hearts of those who know him and accept his rule in their life. In 1719, that's over 300 years ago, an English pastor named Isaac Watts wrote a song about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. He didn't intend for it to be a Christmas carol. It was about the millennium. But it's become one of the two or three most sung of all of what we call Christmas carols. And look at it with me. Analyze it just for a moment. 
joy to the world, the Lord has come. That's true. Amen, amen. Let earth receive her king. Uh-uh. That hasn't happened yet. See, he was talking about the millennium. He's talking about Jesus being the king, and he was rejected the first time. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Hold on. You think Jesus Christ is reigning in the world today? No, he's not reigning yet. But he's going to. He's going to. Let men their songs employ, and while fields and woods and floods and plains repeat the sounding joy. Then look at the next verse. No more let sin or thorns, uh, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. In other words, it's saying the curse will be removed. The thorns won't infest the ground. Sorrow will be gone. It'll be like it was before the fall of man. And then the last verse. He rules the world with truth and grace. Oh, that hadn't happened. That's what we wish for. We pray for. Amen? That's what we seek to, to, to bring to being in one way when we try to evangelize people. He rules the world with truth and grace, and He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. And so, Isaac Watts wrote that song anticipating this perfect day, this utopian future when the curse is removed, the world is at peace, and Jesus reigns on His throne in Jerusalem. It hasn't happened yet. Ladies and gentlemen, read my lips. It will happen one day. Our King will come, and we will worship Him, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Our heads are bowed.